0: Good morning. Thank you for everyone not going on holidays this long weekend. Uh, It's good to have some of us here, at least. So, uh, wonderful to have you all this morning. Um, Today we are in the book of Daniel, as we do chapter 18 of the story, and because I'm doing the whole book of Daniel in 30 minutes, uh, I'm getting straight into it. So Daniel is 12 chapters long. So let's go. Now, um, uh, the first six are narrative. The first six are narrative chapters. And those six chapters have some of the most wonderful stories of the Old Testament that we all knew. If we ever we went to Sunday school, you heard these stories in Daniel, right? We know them. Um, but some of us might not have been to Sunday school, and so they might be new to you today too. And so that's wonderful that you get to hear them today. Um, but, you know, things like Daniel in the lion's den, the fire furnace, we saw the video just then. Um, the, the last six chapters of Daniel are mainly prophetic. And so I want to just delve into a quick aspect of that prophecy first, and then I'm going to preach the first six chapters of Daniel. So the first what I want to jump into is the setting for Daniel, though, is that Daniel is written, well, Daniel is in exile in babylon so the kingdoms are fallen north south gone southern the judah kingdom of judah has been carried off by the babylonians into exile and that's where we find daniel daniel chapter 9 is the prophecy of the 70 weeks of daniel this is where daniel sees a vision a picture of the future and he sees that there's going to be 70, sorry, seven weeks and then there's going to be 62 weeks and that comprises 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now the first seven weeks will be the period where people are released from exile and they get to go back to Jerusalem. And the clock starts when the exiles get to return then the totality of the seven weeks and the 62 weeks culminate when the Messiah is cut off. So of the 70 weeks, it starts when they return from exile and it will end 69 weeks when the Messiah is cut off and then there is one week remaining, that is the 70th week. So when you do the maths, I'm not sure if you're a mathematician like me, but when you do the maths, Sorry, Kelly, can you click on the next slide for me, please? Thanks. When you do the maths, you see that the seven weeks plus 62 weeks equals 69 weeks. And a biblical year, this prophecy works out as each week is worth seven years. But in the Bible, a year was 360 days. And so 69 weeks times 7 years equals 483 biblical years, times by their years, which was 360 days, that equals 173,880 days. Those days started with Nehemiah when they returned from exile, 445 BC. And then when you add up all those years, it comes out at 32 AD, which was prophesied by Daniel, And 32 AD is when Jesus culminated his his earthly ministry and was crucified on the cross. All predicted by Daniel. It lines up perfectly. Amazing, isn't it? And now what we are doing is we are waiting for the 70th week. And so what we have in between, in the New Testament, Paul says that the church is a mystery that even the prophets of old did not foresee. And so what many people believe is that of these 70 weeks, 69 have transpired. And there is one week yet to take place. And we live in what is known as the church age, a divine parenthesis. See, Paul referred to it as the mystery. And the mystery is this, even Gentiles, you and I, non-Jewish people, we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who would indwell us that same spirit who raised christ jesus from the dead would now live in us and there would be this season known as the church age where many would come to faith and participate in the seed of abraham by faith you and i we get to live in this parenthesis the hallmark of the church age is the indwelling presence of the holy spirit of god and so just like if you're pregnant eventually you know it. If you have the Holy Spirit inside you, so too you know it. If, and so, so transformation takes place when we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Paul talks about this when he says that, in fact, we become new creations in Christ Jesus. And that might be hard for some of us to understand um, because... This is a new classification of being. We are new creations that had never existed before. We are our new creations in Christ. When we receive the Holy Spirit of God, we are transformed. Life is different. This is the age in which we live, the divine parenthesis, waiting for the 70th week of Daniel. first 69 weeks are done. We're waiting for the 70th week, and we are in this period of mystery, as Paul determined it, because even the prophets of the Old Testament did not foresee this period of time. But Daniel's book is a book about the exiles. And you know what? We too are exiles. And this might be a bit weird, right? I'm trying to get a head around it, like, what? I haven't been carried off by Balon. What are you talking about? I'm not in Daniel like no. I'm not in exile. Like I own my home. How can I be in exile? Like okay, so so let me let me explain this. Um there is one king and his name is Jesus. Thank you. Oh, great. It's like, you know, primary school, uh, Sunday school all over again, right? What's the answer? It's always Jesus, right? There's one king, and his name is Jesus, and he has called us to be participants of his kingdom now. That is why he's given us the Holy Spirit. So, when asked which nation do we belong to? Well, the kingdom of heaven. And scripture tells us that we are aliens, we are foreigners, we are strangers in a strange land. If we don't first and foremost identify with Jesus as our king and that our nationality is of the kingdom of heaven, that is our identity. So what we must understand is the fact that we are in exile. We serve a king and are from a different country but we live in Australia and every 3 years or so sometimes a lot shorter than 3 years we get a different king over us who isn't the true king although we represent Jesus we live in exile our citizenship is not of this country it is of a different kingdom so we we live in exile so to live in exile and moreover, to thrive as we live in exile, here's principle number one: you have to stand out. When Daniel was presented with a banquet of the king, it says in chapter one, verse eight. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked that the chief official uh, he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So Daniel was granted permission from the chief official when they were presented before the king. They stood out as healthier and smarter and wiser and better than all the others because they chose not to defile themselves. They stood out. You know, it's not le- easy to live in our culture and not be stained. You know, The word defile means stained. It's not easy, is it, to live in our world and not be stained? You know, and and, and I'm not talking about perfection. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about perfection, but about progressing. Making more choices progressively that honour Jesus more and more. Surrendering more of ourselves day by day. Daniel and his friends stand out. And in chapter 2, the king has these dreams and no one can interpret them. And so the king very rationally decides that he would kill all of his advisors. Very rational man, this one. So Daniel goes before the king and says, look, you know, don't kill me. I can't interpret the dreams, but I serve a God who can. Allow me to go and inquire of him. So the king allows it. Daniel goes off and God reveals the dream's meaning to him and he reports it back to the king and King Nebuchadnezzar responds. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. So as followers of Christ, we need to stand out. And then there's moments and opportunities where we get to represent Jesus as people who stand out. But we also need to stand up. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is pretty clear we most of us will know it well they were supposed to bow down to an idol but refused to do so verse six whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace that's chapter three but yet verse 16 shadrach meshach and abednego replied to him king nebuchadnezzar We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods to worship uh, or worship the image of gold you have set up. They took a stand and stood up. They stood up to things that they were not supposed to do they they honored the Lord and standing up you know the the only way that we are ever going to stand out is if we actually stand up and represent Jesus to our world that we will not have bended knees to any of the idols of our culture and there are so many things that we are being told you know or, or enticed to bend our knee to alcohol, pornography, pride, gossip. You know, the list is almost endless. You can start, stick anything in that our culture is saying, bend a knee to this idol. And the question is, though, when will we stand up? When will we stand up against that sort of thing and take our stand like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and said, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to do what you're telling me. I'm going to stand up for my convictions. Stand out, stand up, and my third principle today is this, stand firm. In chapter 5, King Belshazzar takes rule, most likely a descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar holds a massive feast for a thousand of his lords and orders the gold and silver vessels be brought out that had been taken from the Jewish temple for them to drink from. Suddenly this hand appears out of nowhere and begins writing on the wall and it writes four words and and no one knows the meaning. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Daniel is found to be the only one able to give the interpretation. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel is robed as a ruler, and that very night Belshazzar is killed, and Darius the Mede became king. And this brings us up to chapter 6, where we're going to spend the rest of our time today as we look how do we stand firm. Now you might, uh, I guess, how old do you think Daniel might be by the time we get to chapter 6? See, so because we've all got these pictures in our minds from our storybook Bibles or from, you know, children's church that Daniel's a young man when he's in the lion's den. But Daniel here, he's actually around 80 years old. Now, look around and see, you know, I, I'm, I'm not even half that yet, right? Right? Um, there are probably people that we know who are 80. You can think of them. Now now think of them as Daniel, right? That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about beautiful young faces. We're talking about 80-year-old man. And he's an example of someone who finished well. He ran right up to the finishing line and he finished well. He had an impact on those around him for the glory of God right until the end of his days. Standing firm is to publicly assert your unyielding support of, defence of, or opposition to something. This is what it means to be salt and light, to be different in a good way. To take a stand for Jesus and against sin. To take a stand for biblical convictions and against apostasy and compromise. So the first thing that Daniel does to stand firm is he embraces his calling. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. See, Daniel was not really a prophet like we think of the other prophets of the Old Testament. He was really a governmental official. Do we have any of those here today, governmental officials? Um, he lived his mission out in the marketplace he lived his mission in the marketplace and we need Christians who are willing to embrace their vocation as their calling you see we need to banish from our thinking the idea that there is a sacred part of life and a secular part of life all of life is sacred to God Jesus says you are the salt of the world And as we live in our community, in the businesses we're employed in, through social interactions and community organisations, in our relationships with people here in the northeast, we are that salt in our community. You know, I'm part of the Wangaratta Symphony Orchestra for that purpose, to be vitally involved in our community for the purposes of the Gospel. And you should be vitally involved in our community for the purposes of bringing hope in the Gospel too either in a workplace or organisation or both or many. But you might be saying, hold on, Aaron, that's pretty easy for you to say. I mean, seriously, you work in the church. Like it's its like you're almost paid to do that, right? You know, you, you don't know the workplace that I'm in. You don't know the boss that I have. You don't know the culture that of where I work. Well... Do you know that Daniel didn't choose his vocation either? His job was chosen for him. Daniel chapter 1 tells us how King Nebuchadnezzar took him by force and placed him in the king's court. So even if you don't have a job that you particularly like, you can still embrace it as your calling, as an act of worship before the Lord. You can still make a difference for him. When I think of a Christian who stood firm by embracing their calling to be salt and light in the world, you know, there's no other prime example than William Wilberforce. Uh, he was 21 years old when elected to Parliament in Britain. In 1784, he had a deep spiritual conversion to Christ. He sought advice from Pastor John Newton, who you might know from writing a little hymn called Amazing Grace. As, as Newton, uh, sorry, as um as Wilberforce was a little bit disenchanted by politics. And Newton told William Wilberforce that maybe God has you there for a reason. And so he stayed in politics. He embraced that vocation as his calling, and one thing that he became deeply passionate about was the evil of slavery. He laboured in Parliament for over 40 years to abolish slavery in England and its empire, and succeeded all because of a christian who embraced their calling as salt and light gee we need christians to do the same today don't we you know to say where god has placed me is my calling i'm going to stand firm and be salt and light i'm going to approach my job as worship i'm going to be the church on mission for jesus in the world as salt and light where god has placed me where god has placed me i'm going to bring hope if you want to thrive as a christian Don't just pick up your Christianity at the door on your way into church and wear it like a coat on a Sunday when you're here and then leave it at the door when you leave. Take Christ with you. Be on mission. Be salt and light. Embrace your calling wherever God has placed you because God places us where he wants us for his plans and his purposes. If we're going to stand firm as we embrace our calling, we also need to excel in character. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. See, the king was basically planning to make Daniel president of the whole kingdom and first He was one of the top three, and now he was even going to be their chief, the head, the kingpin of those three. And this was all because he had an excellent spirit. He excelled in character. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. See, they couldn't find any dirt on Daniel. Daniel. Not a single bit, except for one thing. Verse 5. I don't have it there, that's okay. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So what they're saying is, Daniel's character was so excellent that the only dirt they could find on him was his faith in in god the only ground of complaint they had against daniel was that he was a man who served god wholeheartedly that's a pretty good thing for people to complain about you about isn't it i mean if people are going to complain about me for something i prefer it to be this than anything else 1 Peter 2.12 says keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Titus 2.7.8 says show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. Have nothing evil to say about us. Daniel's opponents had nothing evil to say about him except that he loved and served God. What a great challenge for us. And really convicting because it causes us to come before the Lord and ask him to search us. And of course, to repent before the Lord. You know, if we're going to make a difference in our walk as Christians and thrive here in the northeast with the glory of God and the hope of the gospel, we too then need to excel in character. We need excellent character. An excellent character does not mean that we are perfect. No one's going to be perfect. But a person of integrity is a person who is the same in public as they are in private. As we stand firm, not only do we need to embrace our calling, not only do we need to excel in character, but we also need to exhibit courageous faith. We need to be people of no compromise. So if you truly embrace your calling, are open as a Christian, if you are public as a Christian and you're excelling in Christian character, then you can expect opposition, which is exactly what happens to Daniel. Look at verse 6. And these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the councillors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius, sign the document and injunction." You see, they came and they appealed to Darius' pride. They set a trap for Daniel by playing on the king's ego because they knew Daniel's faith was no secret. They got, to the, king, they got the king to sign a document that everyone was only going to pray to that king for the next 30 days. And King Darius, well, why not? He signed away. This is different to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who had to take a stand against idolatry in chapter 3. It's different here in Daniel because he had to take a stand against the law of the land. So you know how people are so you know important that we must follow government authority? Well, here's an example of where it was just and right not to do so. And throughout the centuries, even today, people all over the world have had to take their stand against unjust and ungodly laws. I mean, the fact that mandate... Uh, that that vaccine mandates, for one thing, still exist for workers in Victoria could be considered one of these things. Like, we're we're well past that, right? As are the laws of this land that could land me in prison for praying for someone, right? Not all laws are just. Not all laws are to be followed by those who follow the Lord. So what what does Daniel do? Remember for Daniel disobedience would be very costly he was going to be president would you give up your presidency for your faith if you were going to be president of the nation would you give that up for your faith but it could also cost him his life he could be thrown into the lion's den and so basically he has three choices one just not pray for 30 days right oh i'm just going to stop doing what i'd normally do honor the lord right i'm just going to stop doing that because if i did do that i'd break break the law so i'm just going to stop number two well how about i just pray in private just in my heart you know so that no one else would see or three he could just continue and do what he'd always done daniel took his stand and he stood firm chapter 6 verse 10 when daniel knew that the document Uh, had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, as he'd always done, and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Daniel did not compromise. He exhibited courageous faith. He did what he had always done. He prayed to God just as he'd done his whole entire life, three times a day and so when the law changed it didn't mean anything to daniel and there are three things we can see about daniel's courageous faith right here in verse 10 his faith was open his faith was consistent and his faith was known he continued in his convictions regardless of the cost and it did cost verse 11 these men they came by agreement and found daniel making petition and a plea before his god then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction o king didn't you sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to god or man for 30 days you know shall be cast in the den of lions and the king said yeah of course that's the law and so they answered well daniel one of the exiles from judah he pays no attention to you o king Or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, in verse 14, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he laboured till the sun went down to rescue him. And the men came by agreement to the king and said, King, O king, no, it's the law of the Mede and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And so the king commanded, Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. A stone was brought, laid over the mouth of the den of lions. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with a signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. What courageous faith. He was willing to stand firm and not compromise his convictions. Are you willing to stand firm and not compromise your convictions? So how do we stand firm, though? Well, it's by embracing our calling, it's by excelling in character, and it's by exhibiting courageous faith, but by not compromising and sticking to our convictions. Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, when I read this account of Daniel, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I have to admit that I feel weak and I don't feel as courageous and as strong as Daniel. When we read these stories in the Bible, we tend to read them more as morality tales. Be like Daniel, dare to be a Daniel. You've probably heard sermons with, with these topics as the, as the, the line, you know, the tagline. There is some merit to that, right? Yet this is teaching us about how to stand firm but where does the courage come from to stand firm like Daniel? To embrace your calling, to excel in character, to exhibit courageous faith. You know, if, if I finished the sermon here, you'd be like, great, lunch is early today. But you'd also walk away feeling convicted, but not transformed. So where does the courage come from? Well, Verse 19 and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken out of the den, and no harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. See, God sends angels to shut the lion's mouth. That's where the courage comes from, to stand firm it comes from god but i guess the question asked is does god always shut the mouth of the lion i wonder how ignatius of antioch would read this story he was a christian in the first century who in 108 a.d was literally eaten by lions in the Colosseum. or how do believers in hebrews 11 read this story By the end of that chapter, it's talking about Christians who have been stoned and imprisoned and even sawn in two. How would they read this story? If you think that God put this story in the Bible to teach us that if we are innocent and stand for him, then we can expect him to deliver us always without a scratch, then we're kidding ourselves, right? Because you and I know that by our experiences, that is not true. Christians do get beaten up and killed for their faith, yes, even today. This is the reality in our world. This is the truth. This is reality. If we just read this story as a morality tale, then we miss something immensely powerful about this story. Because I know someone who is more innocent than Daniel, someone who was thrown metaphorically into a lion's den, whose stone was rolled over his tomb, where no deceit was found in his mouth, And yet he was ripped to shreds and torn apart Daniel's miraculously miraculous deliverance is just that it's a miracle Darius says as much in verse 27 he says God delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth it was a miracle but what is a miracle well let me tell you what a miracle isn't a miracle isn't just a naked display of God's power. All the miracles that Jesus did in the Bible were signposts. They pointed forward to the future coming kingdom. When Jesus healed the blind, when he made the lame walk, when he raised Lazarus to life, they were all signposts pointing forward to the future kingdom, the kingdom that we are citizens of and what that kingdom will be like there'll be no death no disease the devil won't reign anymore in god's future kingdom and so in the lion's den you have god's kingdom breaking out and you know what it says in isaiah it says that the lion will lay down with a lamb god will shut the mouth of the lions in god's future kingdom so, where does the courage come from to stand firm and stand for God even though it might cost us? Well, it comes from knowing that even though you might give your life now, you have eternal life. You have a life to come. This also points to Jesus. Did you notice in verse 22 of Daniel that he said, My God sent his angels and shut the lions' mouths? It's very interesting over in chapter 3 that when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego walked into the furnace, there was that fourth person who walked with them, one who was like the son of the living God. Later in the chapter, he's called the angel of the Lord. And here we see God sent his angel to shut the mouth of the lion. Jesus shut the mouth of the lion so Daniel would not be harmed. Jesus could shut the mouth of the lion because on the cross, Jesus suffered the full roar of God's wrath against sin so that our sin could be paid for, so that he could shut the mouth of the lion forever. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Daniel is the lion tamer in Daniel chapter 6. Jesus is the lion tamer in Daniel chapter 6. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that might have life and have it abundantly. The devil is that lion that comes to kill and destroy. But Jesus has come to bring life. You know, Jesus has shut the mouth of the lion. And you might be feeling right now like you are being crushed, like you are in the mouth of a lion. But remember, Jesus has shut the lion's mouth. Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross. So you don't have to fear any longer. You can walk in faith. Where does the courage come from to stand firm as exiles? It comes from Jesus who has closed the mouth of the lion, who has delivered us from our sins and brought us to glorious light. So what is our response to this today? Well, hopefully you will say with me, I will stand out I will stand up and I will stand firm. Let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, the world that we live in is a challenge for so many of us. Full of temptation. Full, it's so hard to, to not be stained. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand out. That we would stand out because, Lord, we stand by our convictions We stand out because, Lord, we are different, because we are citizens of a different kingdom. Lord, I also pray that we will stand up, stand up against injustice, stand up against ungodliness, stand up against sin and pride and all those things that can tear us from you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand out and stand up for you. And most of all, Lord, That we would stand firm. That we would exhibit courageous faith. That, Lord, we won't let the fears of this world overcome us because, Lord, you are the great overcomer. That we would stand firm in you and continue to bring glory to you in the hope of the gospel, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Graham.